think to study the Cuban reform process, you really have to have a both a political and an economic and a global say at the broad to understand what is going on. Our two Cuban economists, they are both uh, been working out of uh, the Center for Economic uh, uh, Studies, CASA, uh, which is at the University of Havana, Ricardo Torres, um, and Yolenis Moulet. Ricardo has written an article uh, more on the macroeconomic uh, character uh, of the reforms, discussing um, both the, uh, the, uh, the content of the reform and also the shortcomings particularly emphasizing the paradox that uh, there is much more incentives now for foreign investments than for uh, domestic entrepreneurs. Um, but of course, the extent of participation from uh, national uh, micro-capital, you can say, is much more expensive than from foreign capital. So there is a contradiction between what has been uh, offered of incentives to foreign investors and to domestic cointagrafistas, uh, as they call most of them, uh, uh, freelance um, entrepreneurs. Uh, so this is one of the paradoxes that he is pointing out. Yairianis um, is um, writing a very interesting article going much more down to a specific case, studying the shoe producers, one of the most important um, uh, categories of cointagrafistas in Cuba. Um, in the, in, the, in the production sector, because most of the federalisms are working on services. And it's a very interesting and intriguing article on, on how the uh, private economy, the private micro company, uh, companies in Cuba, have to find a way around uh, illicit, uh, often illegal markets in order to survive. Uh, the lack of incentives to have them uh, formalize and the uh, quite uh, intrinsic relationship between the private small producers and the state. Where we would call a parasitical relationship in many ways. Um, so my my subject usually has been. Let me first say that I'm in my old days now in doing my my doctorate um, on the uh, relation between economic reforms and political change in Cuba. I think uh, it's very important to, uh, to understand how these relationships is, is playing out, and uh, that is what I'm partly doing also in this article. Um, the, uh, the first part of the article is, um, is an attempt to look at how the, uh, the need, the urgent need for uh, normalization or, or economic, uh, international economic relations is uh, what effect it has on the domestic sector. Um, I would say that uh, this has been one of the main driving forces behind Cuba's approach to the US and the normalization of the US, the need for for, uh, for new partnerships and for foreign investments. In a situation where Cuba was seen very clearly that the relationship to Venezuela and to Brazil, particularly, uh, was coming to trouble uh, borders. I would say that this has been one of the most important driving forces when Raul Castro started the rapprochement with, with the US. Um, there's also a lot to say about the US motives for this. Uh, but uh, let that be, be said on there at, at this point. Uh, the um, the uh, uh, need for introducing a more market uh, economy, market relations in the Cuban economy, has particularly, my view, two, two motives. First of all, the need to find alternative employment 
for those being laid off from the state sector. The state sector can't really handle the number of people they employ anymore. Many, actually, large part of the state companies are really not productive. Um, so the need really to, to, um, to, to give incentives for private uh, sector, private sector to, to absorb part of this, this workforce. The second driving force <coughs> is the need for more food production. Cuba spends 70-80% of its, uh, of its uh, sorry, um, between 70 and 80 percent of uh, food consumption in Cuba is imported in a country that can produce much more than inhabitants. So that is, I would say, the second driving force behind this, uh, these markets, pro-market reforms. The historical relationship between Cuba and the U.S. and how Barack Obama's um, uh, steps to normalize relations has been really a break with uh, a long historical tradition uh, going back to uh, to uh, the Plata Amendment and to the um, Annexonista uh, thinking that has been dominating all the way up to uh, and before Barack Obama's administration. George Bush was very, very clear that his goal was regime change in Cuba. In the tradition of the Plata Amendment, in the tradition of the uh, Annexonista relationship between Cuba and the US. What is new with Barack Obama, in my view, that is a really significant change, is that he has declared very clearly that his objective in Cuba is no regime change. And the US, and the present US administration, said clearly that the political system in Cuba is up to the Cuban citizens to decide. Of course, he's not hiding that the US would like to see more human rights, to, to see more pluralistic political relations. That, as he very clearly uh, has emphasized, that is for Cubans to decide. So, the period between Barack Obama's visit in Havana uh, in mid-March and the seventh, the, the, the seventh uh, Congress or the Communist Party one month later was really a, a very, very interesting case study of the, the uh, differences that Cubans uh, have been uh, seeing in public policy these, uh, these later years. We had a historical visit by a black, charming, really young American president with his family. He took his mother-in-law to, to Cuba and his two sisters. There is no doubt that this had a tremendous, almost an electrical effect on ordinary Cubans. The same week, or the week, the week after, actually, we had a Rolling Stones concert, historical. And then four weeks later, we had the Seventh Party Congress, still dominated by men in their 80s and 70s. Um, and the, the, the contrast between these two moments, I think, the most Cubans stand up, stand up as the real, the real uh, differences they are seeing in their daily life. Um, there is no opinion poll that I've seen after the Obama visit, but I would guess that the extent of support for normalization that was declared in the in poll in uh, March uh, 2015 is no less today. However, and that is one of the important points of the article, uh, the party congress um, really put a break both on the reforms and on the reunification of the leadership. 
there was no new, no renewal of the top leadership of the party as had been expected. So the same generation is now carrying on until the eighth party congress in 2021. But we are coming to a situation between 2018, when Raul Castro is going to step down as president, and 2021, when the next party congress is, which is going to be, in my view, the critical juncture in Cuba's transformative process. I think I spent my time, I'm ending the article also with a series of scenarios of what I think could happen, depending, in my view, on this, some important decisions that will be taken in the next three to five years, or what I would call the transformative uh, uh, questions that Cuba is, is confronted with in these years. I think I'll stop there and uh, come back to questions on Thank you. Sure. Over to you, Lawrence, please. So I think we're trying to be brief in our presentation, partly because we believe that a lot of the discussion is likely to revolve around relatively speculative or relatively immediate things where Cuba has been since Obama the normalization and where it might be going now and in the near future. The special issue of the journal, as Regard points out, um, I mean, it was already, the papers were commissioned early ago, uh, some time ago, and uh, they necessarily give a sort of structural background uh, to that. And it would take too long to go through, for example, my paper, which is quite a historical paper, uh, in detail. So I'm just going to give you a few headlines, including a few personal uh, reflections. So I started working on Cuba. I first went as a student in 1968. This was the moment when the revolutionary offensive was at its peak, which is to say this was the moment when socialization or communization of the economy was carried to its limits. Even the small shopkeepers, even the uh, uh, most minor um, single family enterprises and so on were being brought under state control. And what really we've been seeing in the last, especially the last uh, several years, is really the reversal of the extreme uh, uh, socialization of the economy that took, a, that took place at that time. But it's a slow reversal after four decades or more of um, uh, a very strong form of, uh, certainly in economic terms, central planning and communist rule. And also in political terms, domination by, uh, well, how, how are we going to characterize the regime? Uh, is it a, a personalist regime? Is it a communist party regime? Is it a revolutionary regime? Or is it, in fact, rather sui generis? I, my article revolves around those different conceptions. And um, I think that really I'm basically going to say to you, my, where I come out is that it's quite sui generis. And because it's so generous, that tells us how it managed to last beyond for 25 years beyond the collapse of the, uh, the Soviet Union, and how it um, still has considerable uh, uh, reserves of uh, momentum or uh, resilience within it. So my article is called um, the, the Puzzle of Autocratic Resilience Stroke Regime Collapse. And it starts with uh, a quotation from Tom Shannon, who was, as uh, Vega was just talking about, George Bush. George Bush 
put Tom Shannon in charge of Latin American diplomacy, and in December 2006, Tom Shannon, a pretty sophisticated operator by the standards of George Bush's administration, came up with a helicopter theory. He observed that Fidel Castro had um, had a health crisis, which meant that he had to stand down from most of his leadership roles. And he said, well, we know about autocratic regimes. Uh, it's like a helicopter. When uh, a crucial piece of the helicopter ceases to work, the whole thing comes crashing down, and something entirely different will take its place. And that really was the dominant idea that had prevailed for a very long time in US policy towards Cuba. Fidel was the vital personal ingredient that kept the whole thing going. And that now that he was standing down, there was no other way that the regime could survive. Well, that was you know, in 2006, and we're now 2016. So there was something a bit incomplete about the helicopter theory. <laughs> um, and that's what my article is really uh, reflecting on. The helicopter theory isn't completely wrong. There are autocratic regimes, I go through uh, some of the arguments where once the key ruler is removed, the whole thing does come crashing down. And indeed, that was exactly what happened in 1958 when Batista um, went into exile. So there is uh, historical evidence for the helicopter theory working and working in Cuba. But somehow, there's something about the Cuban regime since 1958 which uh, doesn't fit in that framework. So what is that something? Well, my article reviews two different ways of thinking about what it might be. One is going through, as it were, the standard comparative politics literature about the resilience of autocratic regimes, which uh, considers questions like, um, are one-party regimes more resilient than military regimes? Um, uh, 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 how the regime handles succession crisis? Uh, etc. Et I won't go into all of that because I want to come to the second part, which is really where the bulk of my interest is, which is about Cuba as an exceptional case. That no, no matter what your general propositions are, you can't just read off from certain basic characteristics of the Cuban regime to how uh, all regimes of that kind will evolve. So what are the sources of the exceptionalism? Why? I, I, as I say, I first went to Cuba in 1958, and my problem has always been that therefore I'm familiar with Cuban communism in a way that I'm not familiar with any other communist regime. And nearly everything I read about communist regimes and how they evolve or how they collapse doesn't fit Cuba, but it may be perfectly all right for everybody else. So I have this problem, how, how to explain uh, the, uh, the Cuban deviation. In, in very brief terms, one fundamental difference is Cuba's extremely strange geopolitical location. There it is in the heart of the Caribbean, just south of Miami, 90 miles from Miami. And um, as, it, as the Russians saw it, for example, you could reverse alliances. You, know, you could have uh, a military base in Cuba, uh, the entire United States defense system against Russia, which was geared across the, uh, the Arctic and through Canada and so on, uh, would be challenged from the other side. So it was an asset of real uh, geopolitical importance. But not just a geopolitical asset, it was also a profoundly 
energizing ideological essay because the Cuban Revolution was showing that communism of a certain kind could be attractive and could be addressing problems that other countries couldn't address uh, in not just in Cuba, but problems that would, uh, in a way, that would have an appeal, for example, in Nicaragua, for example, in Chile, for example, in Angola, and so forth. So it, this was an ideological asset as well as a geopolitical asset of very great value. Um, also, uh, there is the, the standard argument about communist regimes, well, they're so very brutal and oppressive, and they have these gulags, and they keep large proportions of their population in very, very, uh, the only way they're able to maintain their dominance is by the way they uh, abuse all those people who are trying to resist. Now, the interesting thing about Cuba, precisely because it's 90 miles from Miami, and also because the United States was so keen to bring down the Cuban regime after uh, the revolution, is that the United States offered a tremendously powerful incentive for Cuban dissidents to leave. Actually, the reason why the Batista regime collapsed so easily was because Batista and many of the people around him could say, well, I'm not going to stay here any longer and try and defend my interests in Cuba because I can go to a nice retirement in Miami and everything would be just fine for me, thank you very much. And so, um, that has implications for the internal nature of the Cuban regime, namely that um, whereas I don't know how many tens, hundreds of thousands of people might otherwise have been, might have been necessary to keep them in, 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 in repressive conditions in camps, that such people were uh, left and they became the anti-Castro uh, opposition, but from Miami. Now that actually helped strengthen the regime because it made the regime, uh, as it were, the custodian of Cuban national pride in the face of bullying as it was could be presented by uh, uh, the United States. And of course, the fact that the United States was practicing a sort of one, one country hostility to Cuba and was then trying to bully all its allies into rounding up a, a united front against Cuba, which the other countries didn't have the same degree of offense, a sense of um, hostility to, to the Fidel project that the United States had, uh, also uh, made the, the standard Cold War narrative uh, inapplicable. Um, now, the, the, another feature is that although it was a communist regime, it was not really the communist party that seized power. It wasn't really until some 15 years after the Communist Party, after Fidel and his guerrilla group, who were actually regarded with suspicion by the Cuban Communist Party, after they'd taken power and uh, built their regime largely using guerrilla personnel, military rather than party cadres, it was only after about 15 years that the party became more institutionalized. So the institutionalized and large mass party, which has its seventh, seventh congress that I was talking about, and that will have to try to handle the transition when Raul stands down and so on, is not actually the author of the communist regime. It's a, it's a belated arrival on the scene, and it has to compete with other sources of legitimacy, notably 
nationalist and military legitimacy. And it doesn't control the ideological agenda in the way that uh, you might suppose. Well, those are all reasons for explaining some of the exceptional resilience of uh, the Cuban regime, which, of course, kept going even after Fidel stood down. Admittedly, he stood down, but he was there as a backstop and as a sort of symbolic uh, figure after he stood down uh, until 2014. So the question that I think we'll leave for the discussion, Bert will also have some things to uh, uh, say, is even though these arguments that I go through are powerful explanations for why Cuba was so different from the standard authoritarian regime, there is nevertheless a huge question mark now over what comes next. For example, if the hostility of the United States, the implacable struggle against the United States was the fundamental glue which justified the sacrifices of them and so on, what happens when uh, the Obama administration relaxes that pressure? Now, we will, you will hear a bit more about that in the discussion further on, but one of the reasons, in my opinion, why the Cuban leadership over the last few, two or three years has been moving rather slowly, or indeed very slowly, and very nervously, in responding to that opening opportunity, is they weren't really confident that the United States had permanently changed its policy. And indeed, we have, we have the collapse of the peace process in <coughs> Colombia, and that will be followed by a US election in November, which could produce a Donald Trump, who would certainly want to go back to the kind of outright confrontation and humiliation of the Cuban regime. But even if it produced a Hillary Clinton, it may produce a Hillary Clinton with much less enthusiasm for or commitment to the detente than the Obama administration. So the Cuban leadership have been, you know, ancient 70s, 80s year old, uh, biologically uh, dwindling way, nevertheless, they have been, uh, they have had some good reasons for taking their time and being reluctant to give up the levers of control uh, which have worked so well for them for almost 50 years. But, okay, thank you. Thank you uh, for joining us tonight. And um, from my side, uh, just to, to add that Ricardo Torres and uh, Yalene Moulet would love to have been here to funding that it doesn't make that possible that we could have a whole group here, but I really would like to encourage you to read their uh, papers which are available free of charge by the World Quarterly uh, on the web. So um, we have to uh, think a bit of that part, uh, economic reform they are dealing with as part of the whole package and also uh, of course they have particular points of view. Um, my article takes a point of departure that the standard wisdom explains the current transformation in Cuba precisely as one of its economic transformation only. It's not political transformation. And I write about the changing politics of post-Fidel uh, Cuba. So and there is some reason why that is not perceived very much as a topic. The government itself speaks of updating the model and insists on much continuity in the political sphere and updating in the economic sphere. And also many opposition uh, actors would say, oh, it's all about economics, but uh, in politics nothing will ever change. 
and I take issue with that and I will um, highlight in four uh, points where I think there is a substantial change in the Cuban regime. Not one of regime in the sense of from what John said, democracy, democracy in those um, big uh, conceptual terms, but I nevertheless think there is a very substantial change within the uh, Cuban political system. And one of the points is the depersonalization and the reinstitutionalization of uh, the Cuban socialism as part of the leadership succession of Fidel. The second point is the diversification of Cuba's public sphere. The third point is the liberalization of travel and migration rules, which has a profound impact on state-citizen relations. And the fourth point is the return to moderate foreign policy, which of course was highlighted by the outreach of the United States, Obama's news, but which goes beyond that, and which has, was also really touched upon, very strong domestic implications for a country where there was no distinction between the domestic and the external and that was very much brought together in the revolutionary process. So the first point, depersonalizing Cuban socialism, I take kind of the recourse to Max Weber's terminology, I speak of the charismatic uh, project of state socialism and Fidel, which has been transformed into a bureaucratic model of state socialism, bureaucratic not in a negative sense, in an administrative, logical, uh, in a sense of administrative logic, the outgoing leader was not replaced by another leader as such. Uh, Raul was, was very clear about it, that he is not going to be a Fidel II, uh, but that uh, in his words, only the party can be the heir of uh, the commandante in Treffen. This goes so far that the whole title of commandante in Treffen, which was Fidel's main title, it's not in the constitution, but that was his principal title, commandante in Treffen of the revolution. That title has been left with him. There is nobody, uh, not Raoul or anybody else, would have now that title. Raoul is first secretary of the party and the regular titles of the institutions, but not of this charismatic title, which was not, uh, uh, which was remained with Fidel as uh, a project of the past. And now we have a different constitutional project. And I give some uh, evidence for that, the dismantling of parallel structures, the reinstitutionalization of the party congresses every five years, and uh, also the way in which cater policy is done in a much more um, uh, 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 let's say, um, boring way you could say. <laughs> <laughs> if car party caters who have moved up will be promoted when it's time that they are promoted and with Fidel it was there's the answer and I and, and there were leaps to, to the heights of uh, power which you do not see in present. And charismatic relations are relations. It's not just the leader. It's not just the talks of Fidel. It's also the audience that listens and that performs in that relation. And so the leadership also and today demands other things of its audience, of the public you do not have these mass mobilizations, these marches, this revolutionary fervor to display and loyalty that is demanded, but not this type of mobilized socialism. Uh, we really have a lot of 
a public display of marching for whatever is the cause at the moment for the cause in general. So that's briefly on the, on the institutionalization of the politics and the pluralization of Cuba's public sphere. There is a constitutional monopoly on mass media, monopoly in lands of the state and party and similar organizations. And however, we have a different situation today. It's not that the state media has changed so much else, so some changes, but that is not the big change. The big change is that there are so many other communication ways, so many other media. Uh, it's a country with cell phones, it's a country with very limited access to what we know as the internet, but with a lot of access to different types of digital media. Much of what we uh, uh, see on the web is being transported by email attachment. That has become email attachments, oh, almost an old medium for us. Uh, that is very important. It has changed a lot. People can publish and get it around to people. And we have got the Pakete, Pakete Semanal, which is kind of an offline internet. You subscribe to one terabyte of content, and that is being updated every week. And that carries whatever entertainment to a whole set of different media uh, in a somewhat controlled way. But we have some part of the uh, Pakete, which are publications. It's a second-hand market for whatever, and it contains even what is now an offline TV program. Some call it the Havana TV. They produce video content just to be distributed on this digital uh, drive which circulates and which has become not a mass medium that reach out to the countryside that much, but in Havana, for students in Havana, everybody is going to everybody knows the series uh, they want to watch. And, and it's a whole different thing, of course, also to the international world, there's Wi-Fi uh, in public spaces in Havana, and people are connected to their relatives and friends in the US, in Europe, and wherever they are. So it's a much, much broader public sphere than the monopoly that still is enshrined in the Constitution would lead us to see, which is accepted, tolerated, more or less respected, not in all solid uh, sense, but very different from what we had 10 years ago. The third point, the travel and migration law. It seems like a, a pretty powerful thing, but it's not. I mean, I'm from Germany, and we know that for East German socialism, the restriction on travel and migration was kind of a, that was a wall. That was a landmark thing. It's a big thing how states relate to their citizens in terms of uh, migration and travel, with all the implications, of economic implications, this uh, brain drain and uh, other brains may have. But we have now very liberal uh, travel rules in Cuba. There are very few exceptions. I mean, that is, but most people can travel and may travel in mass, and those who have the means to do so. And that goes hand in hand with all the inequalities that are emerging in Cuba today. That is what I will touch upon in that article, but in a different topic. I, I'm doing so we don't have a level playing field. Those who have a Spanish passport because of their ancestors, they travel much more easily. Those who have relatives in Miami who fund the flight tickets travel much more easily than other parts of society which are, uh, dis uh, which are discriminated in that sense in terms of access to those possibilities. Nevertheless, 100,000 students have this year. There's an attempt to go for a day. You can go in the morning and apply to 
Miami and come back and live in it. It's nothing that absurd anymore. People travel and they know a lot of the world, at least the urbanized professional and also um, better off students have much exposure to the rest of the world. And even in political terms, in confined to the narrow sense of living, what we have seen emerging as public diplomacy, political actors, be it dissidents, be it intellectuals, be it civil society people from within the establishment or from without the establishment, are traveling to events outside to do their kind of, um, well, how execute, I don't want to call it uh, more than that. Right? Yeah, but at an academic event like the Worker Studies Association in the United States, that's different from 10 years ago. People go who, from all sides, see the as part of the official delegation of the UN. So we even have a, a certain erosion of the monopoly on international relations. This society is more diverse than And the state is perhaps reluctantly accepting uh, the people who even even opposition figures who have had direct explicit contact with other governments could return to Havana and remain part of the of the fabric of society. The fourth and foreign policy that probably that I will say the least about you follow that from um, but it's not Obama, it's Sela. We have much more talk about SELAC, the community of Latin American nations, they're not Taliban in the Cuban public discourse. And Raul was for temporary president of SELAC. It's not that Taliban is not there anymore, but it has not got the same prominence it had 10 years ago. And SELAC is a much broader church. I mean, everybody's in SELAC, every Latin American government of whatever kind of ideology. And um, <coughs> so, may that short just a bit last thing on, on the UN. The, um, so I speak of bureaucratic socialism and the right word. It has a different um, deal with society. It's a different social contract in a way, implicit social contract as well. And after there, there was charismatic reputation. There was a lot of be it speeches, be it um, heroic resistance, or whatever the terms were. Fidel Raoult's message is not one of heroic resistance for the world history book, much of material well-being. will be more efficient, there will be more food on the table, and the big word in the two-party documents is speaking of a prosperous and sustainable socialism. Fidel never spoke of a prosperous socialism. That was not the goal of, of uh, his uh, rhetoric in a way. And so to be able to deliver on that in a situation where Venezuela is in its own crisis and the resources from Venezuela have been touched dramatically to Cuba. Other uh, fields like the Brazilian doctor's program is also affected by external uh, events. So the example uh, of the US also is imperative in economic terms to maintain a dynamic sector for the economy to be able to redistribute from what is being cited off from the quite booming US tourism we see in Havana and also the implications of uh, more trade and commerce and financial transactions with the US that is evolving and probably will be evolving forever. So um, with that, I would leave it. There are other items on the agenda that Carl Rowan has 
put an electoral reform on the agenda, it's put a constitutional reform on the agenda, the parliament will move from its burden building back to the Capitolio, which for a long time was kind of the architectural uh, emblematic icon of US dependency of the Soviet Republic. Now then, uh, in 2018, the Congress, the Cuban and parliament will be held there. So there are many other uh, bits and pieces we could all see, but I think with those four big points, my argument is that we do see quite a substantial political transformation in the way, which also will be continuing in some way in the future, even if there's a lot of back and forth perks, but I think it's a moving process. That's it from my side. And the first input, Maxine, you will. Three points, yes, thank you. Thanks to all of you for giving us a very um, well, you know, sort of summary of quite detailed, complex arguments. So thank you for that. I think, um, you know, Lawrence is right. I mean, you know, it is very sui generis, Cuba, in lots of respects. You know, you, you, you leaving, leaving aside its origins, if you look at how Cuba survived, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, its major strategic and economic partner, I mean, I can remember being in Cuba in the 90s and then going to Miami. And the talk in Miami was all about, you know, it can't survive. So even before we got to, you know, Fidel's crisis, health crisis, you know, they were waiting for Cuba to collapse. It didn't. It survived the so-called special period. It continued to survive. And it had a very soft landing, actually. Once you know, it came, it had to confront the fact that Fidel Castro could no longer serve in a kind of driving capacity. And at that point, again, everyone thought, well, how are they going to manage that? They managed it. And they managed it quite well. They had a reformist or quasi-reformist government in place and brought in reforms, a very large number of reforms. I mean, 50 in one kind of fell swoop, more or less. And those reforms are, are increasing all the time. But I think, you know, it, it's, it, the big questions are still there. I mean, you know, prosperity is promised, rising expectations. You, you know, provided both of you a sort of an account of how things are changing, but there are, you know, tensions in the economy in terms of who is benefiting, who has the incentives to grow, who is not, who are the losers, who's losing out in this process. And those tensions for me are quite considerable. You know, rising inequality in a society that has had a kind of quite important kind of constant reference to a moral order. What's happening now is, yes, prosperity that won't be delivered. I mean, the, the Venezuelan money is dried up. You know, there's going to be a period of, there is a period of hardship in Cuba. How are they going to navigate that? Now, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I think there are real challenges in meeting the expectations of a society that has experienced profound social change, is undergoing profound social change, as you said, Bert. And I think, you know, even migration, yes, it's a pressure cooker release. People can finally travel. And that was a huge issue in, in uh, the Soviet Union for a very long time. People can now travel in Cuba. Will that make them more or less content? And I don't think we know that. It will make some more content and some less content. I think, you know, it's very unclear how Cuba's going to actually meet the challenge of the economy um, in such an adverse economic climate. That's another kind of major obstacle. We still have Helms-Burton and the Torricelli bill in place. Um, that's making, you know, 
some investors, not by all means, not by all means all, um, hesitant to make long-term commitments to Cuba. Cuba faces a you know huge capital shortage, is constant in having to import all its food and so forth. These are major structural problems that need you know quite a lot of work to sort out and money. So I think there's a kind of you know some very um, serious problems here, but. Um, the political challenges are the most difficult to predict, aren't they? I mean, post-2018, post, um, that's another big political challenge. What will happen? Will they bring new people in? Will they introduce some kind of selective forms of democracy? Or will they go the Vietnam road and just kind of, you know, keep a sort of, a, you know, a hard control over the political process, but, you know, increase the kind of loosening up of the economy and along capitalist lines. Um, that is another big question. So I think Cuba's constantly at the crossroads. You constantly see, you know, challenges which Cuba may or may not navigate. They've been very adept at navigating some of these challenges. In the past, they haven't faced a great deal of internal opposition. Um, we don't know if that will grow. I think there's a, a you know, a lot of, a, talk about, you know, growing discontent, but that's been the case for quite a long time. I think we'll just have to see.